system and the universe. <laughs> and so um, that's just who I am and who I want us to be about is the kingdom of God. But um, I do believe that what we can do is take this Memorial Day weekend and allow it to point to a greater truth, and that is that freedom came through sacrifice. And so it's an illustration. It's simply an illustration that just as there are those who were willing to sacrifice their lives for the sake of freedom, that's what Jesus did on the cross. That's the greater truth that this holiday points to. And this is all I'm going to say about it right here, but I just... It's what's on my heart, because as we were worshiping, you know, and I so appreciate Jeff encouraging us to be free in our worship and sing a new song to the Lord, something spontaneous. Jesus gave his life, he sacrificed his life so that we can be completely free to be who he made us to be. So that is the greater truth that is the illustration that is this holiday weekend. And uh, I want you to know I labored in prayer over this. <laughs> and I'm at peace. God is good, and it's good to honor those to whom honor is due. So, all right. So, um, <clears throat> I want to make a correction to something I said last week. I said that Samuel was the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. I have no idea why I said that. I don't even know where that came from. Like, really? There was Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, <laughs> Jeremiah. So I don't know why I said that. Uh, he certainly was a great prophet and one of the first, um, but I wouldn't say he was the greatest. I don't, I'm not sure where that came from. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's a coincidence that when I started thinking about this a couple months ago, I just really started thinking about how that insecurity and identity is rooted, is at the root of all of our relational problems and all of our internal problems at the root of why we, why we are held back from being all God wants us to be. And I don't think it's an accident that at, at that precise time, my dad sent me an email with a manuscript he's working on and asked me to help him edit it. And it's about this. And it's all about King Saul and David and all these Bible characters and how that identity played out in their lives. And the timing was so... Uh, amazing, and as I've been learning and studying and applying this in my own life, I am seeing the truth for the very first time, I think, concerning something I told you a few weeks ago. I think that I titled the sermon, uh, If We All Could Do This One Thing, and I need to add the word waiting in there. Waiting on God. I have never before in my life connected this idea of waiting on God which can mean sitting in silence with him, but also maintaining an attitude of waiting throughout the day, just, Lord, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm, I'm not going to react. What are you saying about this? Just a, a lifestyle of waiting. I've never before until now really connected waiting on God with my identity and my sense of security and who I am in Christ. And, and, and as I've been putting in this into practice, I'm seeing results. It's life-changing. So I want to mention, first of all, that when we hear the word insecurity, we usually immediately think of, you know, being socially backward or, or shy or fearful or timid and anxiety and things like that. It's not just that. I believe insecurity encompasses any lack of trust 
complete trust in God that results in a feeling of being completely at home and at rest in the Father's love. And that results from waiting on God, sitting in his presence. Let me illustrate. I found out someone was ignoring my, my attempts at communication. My first reaction was hurt and anger. Because wouldn't we, don't you feel hurt and angry if someone ignores you? <laughs> right? And so what I did was I took that to God and I decided, okay, I'm going to apply this waiting. And so I see when you wait on God, what you're doing is you're examining your heart. You're listening to your heart. So I took that before God. Why am I angry? Why am I hurt and angry, Lord? I mean, obviously this is a human emotion. It's a human reaction. But show me deeper. Dig deep. It's, God shines the light into the recesses of our heart when we wait on him. And so as I sat in silence waiting on God, he, he revealed to me, you're angry and you're hurt because you think you need that person's validation. Okay. Thank you, Lord. I don't. My approval and my validation comes from you and you alone. And I don't need that of anyone. Anyone. So now I can give this to you and I can rest in your love for me and I don't need to be hurt or angry. In fact, I can move beyond that to compassion and understanding. Because I'm filled with the love of God. The Holy Spirit refills me as I sit before God waiting on him. And this is how it works. This is where we get our security and our identity. Waiting is the key. I never really fully understood this before now. Waiting on God is the key. Otherwise, all you've got is information. Really good stuff here. But if you don't digest it through waiting on God, it's not going to become internalized and become a part of you. So today, we talked last Sunday about Saul, King Saul, the insecurity of King Saul. And we saw this transformation of a man who started out just remarkable, just a wonderful man. You know, I mentioned that he was rich, tall, and handsome, and I hope you realize none of those things matter. They don't matter. They were just incidental. But he was a servant. He was, he was caring. He was considerate. He was humble. Humble as all get out. He was humble. He was a man of impressive character. And we saw him start to change. It's fascinating. And so I want to start to make a comparison between the insecurity of Saul and the security of David, his successor, and why God rejected Saul and it says God chose for himself a man after his own heart, King David. And, and I'd like to look at the difference in these two men. But I, going back to what I mentioned last Sunday in 1 Samuel 13, the very first time I think that we see Saul starting to lose it, and have a problem and become insecure is in chapter 13, where if you remember, I mentioned this last Sunday, the Philistines are coming against him. His, his army is scared. They're starting to scatter from him. It says in 1 Samuel 13, verse 8, the people were scattered from him. There is his, his first test. The people are scattering from him. He's losing followers, losing favor. People are losing confidence in him. And so what does he do? He disobeys. Samuel had clearly told him, wait 
do not offer the burnt offering and peace offering that I am supposed to offer acting as the priest in this. I, you know, Samuel had clearly told him, wait. In other words, do not do your religious worshipful activity ahead of time. Don't do it in haste. Otherwise, you're going to make it a formula. You're going to make it the thing you have to do to make you feel all spiritual like everything's going to be okay. Don't do that. You're going to miss the complete heart of worship. That was the message from Samuel to Saul. Remember, Jesus said, the time is coming when those who worship me will worship me in spirit and in truth. It won't be a formula. It won't be a drudgery, an obligation, a religious exercise that's exhausting at times. Samuel's message to Saul was, don't make it that. Wait Trust God that even though you are outwardly not doing anything that looks at all spiritual and everything looks very bleak and why isn't Samuel showing up? Saul, I'm trying to teach you that if you'll trust God in those dark times of waiting, that's what he's after and you will become a true worshiper. Saul didn't get it. He says, he goes ahead and he offers the burnt offering and Samuel says to him in verse 11, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me, ding, 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 there's the test. He became insecure. He's losing favor. And you did not come within the days appointed. Okay, so he's losing favor with people. God's not showing up through Samuel. Nothing's happening. And the Philistines, his enemies are gathering against him. Verse 12 says, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me, and I have not made supplication to the Lord my dad pointed out in his, his writing this phrase. I've never noticed it before. Saul says, therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. In other words, I forced myself to do this religious thing to make sure that I was doing all the stuff so that I would feel okay. Like, surely if I, if I offer this burnt offering, these, this burnt offering and peace offering, then God will be on my side and everything will be okay. Do you hear what he's saying when he says, I forced myself? Should worship of God be something we're compelled to do, as in compulsion? Should it ever be? The best illustration I can think of Saul's attitude right here is a story I read, one of my favorite books. It's, it's on my reference shelf. I read it about once a year. It's called The Pastor by Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite writers. And in this story, he talks about how he's having lunch at a diner with a pastor friend, and he calls him Tom. And they're having lunch, and they're talking about each of their churches. And Eugene Peterson, at this time in the story, he's pastoring a brand-new church in a brand-new developing neighborhood with brand-new younger people, fresh blood, clean slate, and it's very exciting. And his friend Tom is pastoring a church in a historic neighborhood with older buildings, older people who are dying off, and they're set in their ways. It's a very traditional church, and they're comparing the differences. They're comparing the differences, envying the things about each other's churches, you know, that they wish they had, and especially Tom envying Eugene Peterson. And at one point, Eugene Peterson gets up and he goes to the restroom and he comes back and there's his pastor friend, Tom, and he's engaged in a very intense conversation with the waitress and this diner. So Peterson t 
takes a seat somewhere else over at the, you know, this counter and orders a coffee. And when they're all finished, they go out to the car. And, and Tom said, did you see that? Did you see me talking to that lady? Did you see the conversation we were having? Eugene said, yeah, what was that about? He says, she wanted to know all about God in prayer. And then he said this. He said, I wish I could have those conversations like that with people. That's what I want to do. I want to have conversations like that with people in the marketplace and in the diners. And Peterson said, well, why don't you? And Tom said this, because I have to run this blank church. And he used a four-letter word. I forced myself. I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. How much of what we do in life, even the good things that we do for God, are with this same attitude because we're not waiting on God to get his eternal purposes in it and to get his heart in it. I've got to run this D <laughs> church. I got to go take care of so-and-so. Got to go visit so-and-so. Got to go. And it's offerings. It's the offerings God has asked us to offer, but we do it with this attitude that represents Anger rooted out of an insecurity that says, I am not at rest. I am, I am a workaholic for God, and it's making me angry. Because really deep down, I'm not at home in his love for me. So maybe if I do the stuff and I'm going to grit my teeth while I do it, maybe it'll make me look okay and be okay before God and people. You see the attitude here? And that's what Samuel was getting at with Saul. It's like, hey, obedience is better than sacrifice. You're all about religious activity. Try to run this blank worship service of yours. <laughs> and you're missing the entire spirit of it. You're not at rest. Things happen, you know, the electric kicks off. <laughs> We're at rest. We're at rest. The Lord is here doesn't change a thing. We're not worshiping our worship. We're worshiping him. We don't have to run this blank <laughs> show because that's not what it is. And so it's amazing. That's the first test we see with Saul. It's fascinating. And then the next test comes when God tells him, I want you to completely wipe out the Amalekites, every single last one of them. Sometime I'm going to teach on the Amalekites and who they are. But they represent insecurity and, and approaching relationships through the back door, as my dad calls it. Because the Amalekites, they attack the Israelites from the rear, the stragglers, the slow ones who are lagging behind. What coward, what jerks, they came and attacked them at the rear. And so there's a whole truth about the Amalekites. And God said to Saul, I want you to deal with that. In other words, the message for us is deal ruthlessly with every part of your life that looks like this kind of insecurity that makes you react or draw back and cower in fear toward one another. Deal with it. Every bit of it. Get rid of it. And Saul disobeyed again, and he spared King Ahag. King Agag. And here is his sentence. It's chilling. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. Samuel, when he realizes this, that Saul has blown it again, God actually says to Samuel in verse 11, 1 Samuel 15, 11, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. 
for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Ooh, ouch. Samuel says to Saul these words in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 15. Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? When you were little in your own eyes, he's not talking about being down on yourself and low self-esteem. No, he's talking about true humility, which C.S. Lewis said is, it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Samuel said, look, Saul, God called you and anointed you to be king when you weren't all sweet on yourself and when you were not all about self-preservation. That's when God called you. Remember that, Saul? Remember when you thought so little of yourself compared to how you thought of others, how much you cared for others? That's when God called you. He called you when you were little in your own eyes. So there's the downward spiral that is Saul. And in verse, chapter 16, verse 4, uh, and chapter 16, verse 1, where is that, First Samuel 16? I wrote down First Samuel 16, verse 14. First Samuel 16, 14. We read these words, The Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. Somehow God allowed this distressing spirit to trouble Saul. And I believe this can happen. I believe if we don't deal with Amalek in our lives, if we, don't, if we let these things fester, this anger resulting from insecurity and not knowing who we are in Christ, eventually this can happen where the spirit of the Lord finally says, okay, you don't want me here. You keep shoving me away, pushing your own agenda holding on and nursing your hurts and your wounds, nursing them like some pet till they grow and take up more room in the house and there's nothing left for me, the Spirit of God says, okay, he's a gentleman. <laughs> he's a gentleman. He will let you make room for what you want to make room for in your life. He will. It says he actually departed from Saul. Chilling words. So now let's look at this relationship between Saul and King David. You can read these chapters this week, but you may know the backstory is that Samuel goes and he anoints King David to be the next king. And it says in, in chapter 16 and verse 21, David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly. That is, Saul loved David greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Saul loved him greatly, and he says in verse 22, Saul sent to Jesse, David's dad, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. Of course he's found favor in Saul's sight. He's submissive. He's sweet. He's kind. He's humble. He's a kid. He's really young. He's like young enough to probably be his grandson or his son. And he's no threat at this point. He's just a sweet little boy. And he's got this gift. He's a harpist. And he becomes Saul's personal music therapist because Saul's got this distressing spirit that makes him act insane. And the only thing that can calm him down is when David plays his harp. So Saul loves David. 
And it's easy to, insecure people can easily love and favor someone who's no threat to them, especially when they're comforting them like that. So he says, let him stand before me. He has found favor in my sight. And in chapter 18, verse 5, I do encourage you to read these chapters and study them and meditate in them. Um, It says, David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Notice that he behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Saul not only loves David, but he has promoted him. But then enter Goliath. You know the story. David wins this huge victory against Goliath. Nobody wants to come against, take Goliath's challenge except David, this kid, this little shepherd boy. And in typical Saul-like fashion, Saul tries to get David to wear his own armor, Saul's armor, because that's what's, that's Saul's M.O. We do everything in the flesh. We fight with the flesh. We, we gather up our own weapons, our, our own things, our own rituals. And I mean, he's still operating in this same way that he did when he offered the sacrifices that didn't come from his heart. David, you need my armor. You can't go out against this guy like you are. You need my armor. Waiting on God, the purpose of waiting on God is to stop us, to prevent us from fighting our battles in the flesh in our own way, through our own strength. Because what happens when you and I don't take the time to stop and wait on God? We just go and we handle it. We react rather than respond. So you know this story, I'm sure a lot of you. King uh, David, the young shepherd boy, he takes five smooth stones and a sling, with a slingshot, he defeats this powerful giant of the Philistines. And he instantly becomes a hero, a national hero. Now, what does Saul think of David? His sweet little shepherd boy, his sweet little harpist. What does he think now? It says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 6, it says, Now it happened as they were coming home. They're coming home from the battle with the Philistines. They won this huge battle with with the Philistines thanks to David. This had been Saul's huge enemy for the entirety of his reign. It says, as they were returning home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistines, that the women had come out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. And listen to what they sang in verse 7. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Ooh, now David is getting more recognition than Saul. I have been utterly astonished at how needy people are of recognition, especially when others get it more than David. I've been been shocked. And I'm human. Look, I'm not immune to this either. I'm not immune to this. (laughs) We want to be noticed somehow, some way. And in our fallen nature, there's this envy is defined as the pain we feel when someone else gets noticed and recognized more than we do or has something more than we do. Some kind of something we want, whether it's stuff or acclaim and applause. And it says in verse 8, Then Saul was very 
angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? And verse 9 says, so, David, I, so Saul eyed David from that day forward. The literal original text says he eyed him with suspicion because insecurity will always cause us to be suspicious and paranoid. It's interesting to me how suddenly and quickly a person can change from loving favor to anger, just like that, like a switch is flipped. You remember Cain? He brings this, hey, it's the sacrifice again. It's the same thing. I got to bring this de-sacrifice to God. You know, it, God had asked for a lamb. And, and Cain, he works really hard and he thinks, well, you know, maybe this will make God even happier. And he brings him, you remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. <laughs> and it's the same attitude. So loving, worshipful Cain, he goes instantly from bringing a sacrifice of worship to God. Just like that, he switches and he's angry. He's angry when he finds out God's not pleased with his sacrifice. Because he, he, it was the wrong meaning, the wrong purpose. His heart was wrong about it. And the same thing is happening here. And Saul suddenly gets angry. And from that day on, he starts, his insecurity takes, now is starting to manifest in greater ways. And he's viewing David with suspicion and paranoid. He's afraid that he's going to take over the throne. There's a place where God calls King David a man after his own heart. You ever wondered why? I mean, people have tried to answer this, and there are good answers for this. There are varying answers for this. But why on earth would God call David a man after his own heart when David was the one who committed murder and adultery? Yeah, I mean, Saul spared King Agag. God had asked him to kill him. He spared his life. Saul never committed cold-blooded murder or adultery that we know of. David did both of those, and God rejects Saul and calls David to be king in his place and says, I have found for myself a man after my own heart. Why? It seems scandalous. It seems unfair. It seems unjust of God. But if you read their lives, if you read the Psalms, you start to draw two very distinct pictures of two very different characters with two very different hearts. Because Saul, we see him, he apologizes, he repents, but it's, it's what's known as a conciliatory apology. It's all to placate and um, to pacify Samuel's anger and God's anger. There's, there's no real depth, and the proof of it is how angry he becomes over David's success. But how different, I'm, I'm reading this, uh, my dad wrote this in his his thoughts about David. How different was David's response to correction? Who of us have ever said anything like this? David says these words in Psalm 141.5. Let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it is a soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. I, I mean, he's, 
if you, Nathan so beautifully illustrated to us and showed us a few weeks ago from Psalm 51, read it. If you want to read what a true, not a fake apology looks like, read Psalm 51. Read how David owned his stuff before God. It was so different from Saul's apologies, his very quick apologies. And at one point, Saul said, oh, Samuel, I'm so, so sorry. Yes, I've disobeyed. I've sinned. But will you, will you honor me now before the people and come with me and let's offer the sacrifice together? In other words, I'm sorry, but save face. I just need to save face before the people. Will you help me with that? Make me look good, Samuel. It's nothing like that in Psalm 51 with David's repentance repentance. He says, God purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in my sight. And, and if you read it, he's, he's absolutely, completely undone by his sin and he wants nothing more to do with it. He truly wants to be fundamentally changed and transformed. He's truly remorseful and sorrowful for what he's done to the point where he becomes so broken and so humble over his sin that he says in Psalm 141.5, let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. If they correct me, it is a soothing medicine. I don't know that I've ever prayed that prayer. Oh, God, let your people, let them go ahead and strike me. It'll be a kindness. God, I love correction. I welcome instruction. It's a soothing medicine. I can't say that it feels that way. But this is the heart of a truly broken, truly humble person. In Psalm 7, David literally invites God's judgment on himself if he has sinned, even against his enemy. Listen to Psalm 7, verse 5. If I have repaid evil to him who was at peace with me, or if I have plundered my enemy without cause, let my enemy pursue me and overtake me. Yes, let him trample my life to the earth and lay my honor in the dust. This is a man who truly, truly wants to please God at the core of his being in his heart. At whatever, whatever it takes, whatever painful, painful blow from his enemies or God's people. He's, 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 he's learned. He's, he's gotten it. He's learned from his sin. He's repentant. When Saul finally admitted he had sinned, he should have humbled himself in deep repentance, as David did in Psalm 51, when he said, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering, not when it's coming from the wrong heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. This is Psalm 51, verses 16 to 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Instead, Saul did just the opposite. Using worship, my dad is writing these words, I'm quoting from him. Using worship as an appearance of obedience. Oh, using worship as an appearance of obedience. I have sinned, David said. Oh, no, Saul said this. I have sinned, yet now honor me, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Make me look good anyway. And return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. That's in verse 40 of 1 Samuel 15. 
<clears throat> Next Sunday, I want to continue the story of David. And there's an incident that I believe shows us very poignant, poignant, poignantly why he was called a man after God's own heart. There's something that actually happens between him and Saul. Their relationship comes to a head, and there's this moment, something that actually happens. And what Saul, what David does and how he reacts or responds in that moment is nothing short of fascinating to me and disturbing because it makes me examine my own heart. And say, Lord, am I at home? Am I completely at home and at rest in your love to the point where I am so secure in who I am in Christ? So much so that I am unfazed. I'm like a nonstick Teflon coating. Nothing sticks to me. Let the righteous smite me. It will be a kindness. I rejoice at others' successes. I repent truly in sackcloth and ashes when I see my own sin. Not because I've lost face before the people, but because I've displeased my God and because I've broken his heart. Not because I'm afraid because he's angry at me, but because I'm brokenhearted because he's brokenhearted because of my sin. Because he wants what's best for me. Because he loves me. 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 Therefore, my reaction to my sin is no longer a reaction. It's a response that says, I've broken your heart, daddy. That's the attitude. I've broken your heart, and I don't want to. And I know you love me. And I know you love me. And Saul didn't have any of that. There was this compulsion, the gritted teeth. Always trying to make himself okay. It goes back to the fig leaves, doesn't it? Whatever I can prop myself up on, even if it's worship, worship of God, if I can grit my teeth and prop myself up on that to make myself feel like everything's going to be okay. And all the while, God says, if you would just wait, just wait, just sit with me, just sit with me. How much of our lives, Christians, oh dear Christian, oh dear Christian, oh dear spiritual one, how much of our lives are spent doing some religious activity in place of when we should be doing what God wants of us. Just come sit with me. Let me hold you. Let me remind you and tell you all over again how loved you are. All this stuff you do, it's wearing you out, making you angry because you got to do it. It's a wrong sacrifice. God desires obedience, and the very best way we can obey God is come to him, respond to his invitation in love, of love, and say, okay, I'm here. I'm tired of running, and I'm sorry. I'm here to let you love the hurt away. Will you pray with me? Father God, I'm here. I'm here to let you Love away the hurt, the anger, the fear, the anxiety, the depression. Yes, the depression, the discouragement. 
we're here for you to love us, Father God. Lord, would you teach us to wait on you? Would you teach us what that means, Father? Teach us what that means in the same way that we just want to sit with those we love the most. Just sit and be with them. Just enjoy their company. That's all you desire of us because that is what changes us. That's the transforming, powerful love that is the only thing that can truly transform the human heart. And Father, I repent for where I have neglected that and tried to replace that with religious duty and come up empty. I repent of that, Lord. Before I dismiss, I'm just going to leave this space for one more moment. And if God is putting a prayer on your heart, this is not just for me. I'm not the only minister here. If God is putting a prayer on your heart that would encourage and unite the body of Christ, go ahead and speak it out.
Amen. I love how she said he's a good and happy God. See, God wants us to reflect that. He wants us to get so secure in him that we will start to reflect that, and then the world will actually say, okay, they are different. Now there's something. Amen. Go and be blessed.